As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello there, fellow flyers. Welcome to the Plane Crash Podcast. This is your captain of the podcast, Michael Bauer. This is part two of Air Canada Flight 143. We're going to hop right back into our second half of the interview with Captain Bob Pearson and Pearl Dion in just a second. First, we want to thank the Patreon crew for keeping this podcast in the world. Patreon allows people like you to donate monthly to projects you enjoy and want to support. If you want to become a supporter of PCPC, please visit patreon.com forward slash plane crash pod. That's patreon.com forward slash plane crash pod. You can help PCPC keep the lights on, help us keep the website up for as little as a dollar a month. We appreciate all you Patreon members and you future members as well. So thanks guys for the help. We really are grateful. Second order of business is to thank our sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the world's largest online counseling service. With BetterHelp, you can meet with a therapist from the comfort of your own home on your schedule. To learn more, go to betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod. And thanks to BetterHelp. Without further delay, let's rejoin our interview with Captain Bob Pearson and Pearl Dion. I want to get both of your memories of the events of July 23rd, 1983. And I kind of want to bounce between the two of you. I'll start out with Pearl. Uh, Pearl, what was it like arriving to the airport on July 23rd? Uh, why were you and your husband at the time, Rick, and son Chris, heading to Edmonton? Uh, my father was in the hospital uh, in uh, just outside of Edmonton, Vermilion, Alberta. And um, we were going to go and see him uh and when we arrived at the airport, we were there a little early, so um, 
Rick, who was also a, a maintenance engineer at Air Canada, like said, little oh, little Chris, we're, we're going to go and sh- I'll show you the airplane that we're going to fly on. So we went to the window, and um, believe it or not, I got an awful feeling, and uh, I, I couldn't, uh, you know, put it to anything. Just looking at the airplane, I got an awful feeling. And so when things started going wrong on the flight, I, I said to myself, well, this is what what I was feeling. Yeah, did you did you get on the plane in Montreal or Ottawa? In Montreal. In Montreal. And where were you yeah. where were you guys seated on the plane? Uh we were in the middle section. I forget which uh seats. They were in the middle. In the middle section, middle seats. Oh. Captain uh Pearson, what was it like showing up to work that day for you? What time did you show up in Montreal and what was that conversation? You had a conversation with someone in the parking lot, right? Yes, that's right. Um, uh, it was a, a beautiful Saturday uh, early afternoon. Arrived at Montreal Airport, and um, I had a month and a half or so now of flying the airplane, the seven six seven, and I bumped into the two pilots that had brought the airplane in from Edmonton, and they explained to me about uh, this fuel indication problem we were very much used to problems when we first got the airplane in fact there was a myriad of problems so anyway they informed me that out of Edmonton and Ottawa on the way to Montreal they had had to maintenance had to do a drip procedure because the fuel quantity indicators the normal fuel quantity indicators were not working properly and so when when uh, I arrived at the dispatch office at the terminal, um, and we reviewed the procedures uh, in, in our manual, and we the, the the Boeing procedures at the time, if the fuel quantity indicators, the normal ones, which are quite complicated, and they're 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 controlled by a fancy computer, the fuel quantity indicating system. The, the the procedures, Boeing procedures in our flight ops manual was that maintenance would do a drip uh, under the wings, climb up in their truck and, 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 and use an appropriate drip stick on, on each wing and measure the depth of fuel in centimeters. Uh, Canada had just was just moving into the metric system. This was part of the story. And uh, then they would go into a drip manual and come out with the taking the lateral and fore and aft balance of the aircraft into consideration because the ramp is not level, they would inform the refueling company as to how much fuel to board in liters. Yeah. And they would do that, and then they would remeasure in uh, the depth further out on the wing because there's more now more fuel in each wing, um, and, uh, and do the recalculations from centimeters from whichever stick they used into liters, and then using a specific gravity number, convert the the fuel into weight in kilograms for us to program our flight management computers. And once the computers are programmed and we start the engines, we have a, a, a total continual uh, uh, updated indication of fuel remaining. That makes sense. So you crunch the numbers and 
Uh, you didn't have the fuel gauges telling you how much fuel was in the uh, wing tanks. So you did your best, used the number, and you got confused because they, uh, the 767 operated off of kilograms, and you guys, the rest of the fleet, was used to pounds. Is that correct? Yes. Well, um, you know, we were not thinking in pounds at all. I mean, the, the, the course, everything was in, in kilograms. didn't mean an awful lot at the beginning. You know, they talk about kilograms. It's talk, you know... Uh, it, it's hard to envision them. You talk about a 300,000-kilogram airplane. It's, it's it's harder to understand uh, the significance of, of the weight of it as as we were all, like you folks are, used to pounds. Yeah. But w- what happened was when, when when pilots would arrive on the airplane, their cab at any rate, the, we would never we would normally not see the, ref, the, the refueler or maintenance. The maintenance would have signed the logbook out of service, the aircraft service mill, and and the refueler would do his refueling and leave the refueling slip between the throttles. On that refueling slip would be the number of liters uplifted by the refueling company, which we would write that down on our flight plan, uh, that number, for uh, Air Canada accounting purposes. And the other number the refueler would write in would be the specific gravity. Yeah. And so it's a, not a number that we had ever used, but had seen. Typical number, I think, on that day in Montreal, uh, 1.67 was the number written in for specific gravity. And it would have been a different number in Ottawa, I don't, because we had them re-drip the tanks. We boarded, we planned, uh, Michael, to board enough fuel in Montreal and not refuel in Ottawa. Yeah. Uh, and go through this lengthy procedure again. Although, en route from Montreal to Ottawa, we radioed ahead and said, you'll have to re-drip the tanks and 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 do the calculations mm-hmm. so that we can reprogram the computers with an updated number. That makes sense. I was going to ask you uh, both, what was the flight from Montreal to Ottawa like? Was that just completely normal? It was normal. It was a beautiful sunny day. It's only a, it was only a 35-minute flight, and uh, uh, we took off westbound from Montreal, landed to the west in Ottawa. So, so we, we didn't, we, you know, we, we figured we'd probably save a little bit of fuel. And when the maintenance people in Ottawa did the, the made the calculations, it showed that we, in fact, had saved some fuel. Yeah. But, but the flight otherwise was, was quite good. We had a small uh, problem with a valve, uh, a pneumatic valve of one of the engines. But on startup, the, the, the problem was, was, was gone. So For uh, Pearl, was that, was that first flight from Montreal to Ottawa pretty uneventful? Yes, it was just normal, yes. Cool. Um, yeah, no problem. So you get into Ottawa... They check, do another manual check of the amount of fuel in the tanks, and then you guys take off from Ottawa en route to Edmonton. And how was the beginning of that flight? Was that pretty standard? Yes, uh, we had flight planned on the airway, which is not a straight line from Ottawa to Edmonton. It, It zigzags over cities and towns where there are radio aids. And, um, we had flight planned uh, to, fl- to fly at 39,000 feet. There was a strong westerly jet stream uh, at the time, which is normal in, in central Canada in the wintertime. And uh, uh, so we, we 
for the first time with the 767 and our, our it wasn't GPS, but our new navigation system, we were able to uh, fly direct. So we requested a, uh, a clearance from air traffic control uh, to proceed direct to Edmonton and not zigzag down the airway. We got a clearance to do that. And we also got a clearance to fly to climb to 41,000 feet, which we couldn't have done on the airway because it would have been the wrong. So anyway, we got we got we, we, uh, up at 41,000 feet. Then uh, we did, according to our flight to our flight plan, uh, three normal fuel checks, a beam uh, that the cities, the towns of uh, Timmins, Armstrong, and Red Lake, and each fuel check showed we were we were gaining on fuel. Mm-hmm. And, and that was understandable because we were higher above this westerly jet stream that we're, we're bucking headwinds. We've got lower headwinds that we, we're at a more fuel-efficient altitude and we're going direct. So that all made sense. And so uh, fuel uh, problem was not at, at all on our minds during the flight. What happened in the beginning of the flight? You guys had dinner service, is that right? Did you guys all eat? Yeah, we had the uh, passengers had been fed. We had been fed. Uh, we were flying now over north central Ontario, uh, and um, the sun it was sort of getting on in the afternoon, but we were sort of chasing the sun. The sun was staying pretty well in the same place. So, and I remember saying uh, to uh, First Officer Kentel uh, that, uh, Morris, for once, everything's working properly. <laughs> yeah. Not something we should do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, per- Pearl, how was the beginning of that flight for you, the second leg? Was it pretty normal? Yes, it was uh, very normal. And uh, uh, Rick uh, knew Bob, and uh, so he went up to the cockpit to just, chat about airplanes, I guess, and um, Chris and I settled in in another section and watched a, started watching a movie, and uh, everything else seemed to be normal. So Rick left uh, you guys before there was any issue. He was just going to say hi. Yes, that's correct. So uh, Rick goes into the cockpit, and you guys are uh, just talking you're probably talking about the new plane or something is that right captain pearson yes that's right we we had a quite a technical conversation i knew rick a little bit he was also he was a maintenance supervisor in in air canada but he was also a pilot so um we had lots to talk about and uh, we, we had mutual friends as well so uh, but it was mostly technical talk uh, i've got a copy of the cockpit voice recorded tape that uh that a lot of it was, was which only um, has the last 33 minutes before we lost our electrical power. Uh, but but it indicates that you know we were talking about uh, the introduction of the airplane. Rick had not uh, had any training on the 767, so he had lots of questions to ask about the new technology. He was, was he? Uh, he was in the cockpit when that first uh, fuel pressure warning light came on. Yes, he was. He was uh, in, the, in, in the cockpit, and uh, uh, he just uh, was observing what we were doing, and we we analyzed that uh, the first officer and I uh, were of the opinion that it was a, a, a failed fuel pump. Yeah, and there's 
two, two electric pumps feeding fuel to each engine and a suction, suction pump on each engine. So the failure of a pump is not significant. Uh, we simply ended up shutting it off. Where, where was your head at? Like, what were you thinking when that second warning light came on? So the second warning light, when it came on, uh, I don't remember the words that transpired between Morris and I, but uh, the first officer and I, but um, uh, it, it seemed odd that in a brand new airplane, we'd have two pumps fail. Yeah. And uh, now bear in mind that, that, that our fuel indication on our flight management computers showed we had lots of remaining fuel. Yeah. So we just didn't understand what the situation, what, what was going on. And like I said earlier, you know, our background knowledge on how the systems worked was, 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 was not almost non-existent. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I said to something to the effect, I don't remember the exact words, to the first officer, Morris, I, I don't understand this. I'm sure you don't understand what's going on. Uh, let's go to Winnipeg. Yeah. And so Morris got a, a, a clearance from air traffic control. It turned direct Winnipeg. I made an announcement to the passengers. Sorry that uh, we've got some kind of a situation, uh, a, a computer situation that we don't understand. Air Canada has a main maintenance base in Winnipeg, and so uh, we're gonna we're heading for Winnipeg. Mm-hmm. Is uh, is Rick still in the cockpit at this time? Yeah, yeah, he was still there, and I don't remember what whether he said anything or what he had to say. I I do remember asking Rick his opinion, and I, I believe he did say that you know it may be that we are short of fuel. Oh man. And I said, well, uh, but I, we didn't have much of a conversation because we were pretty busy at this stage. Yeah. And and we were going to actually be quite high over Winnipeg, according to our computers. Yeah. Our navigation computers. So when Morris got the clearance to Winnipeg, I turned the aircraft toward, disconnected the autopilot, turned the aircraft manually towards Winnipeg, and we got a clearance down, I believe it was to 6,000 feet, uh, cl- closed the throttles and started our a normal descent. Yeah. And now uh, a 767 is a, is a, is a, a, a good airplane, uh, aerodynamically, it's a super airplane, and it doesn't come down very fast. Um, at any rate, we just started down, and the left engine failed. Oh, man. What were you thinking when that happened? Well, uh, I, I don't actually remember what I was thinking other than the procedure is uh, shut, shut the engine down, shut everything off. And uh, and it may have gone through my head that we had a fuel shortage. But by now, you know, we were just handling an emergency situation, told the... Uh, the purser to prepare the aircraft for an emergency landing uh, in Winnipeg. Mm-hmm. And um, then we just finished uh, going through the shutdown procedure on the uh, left engine, and the right engine failed. Now, this beautiful glass cockpit, all the instruments simply disappeared, and the, and the cockpit went black. Like our, 
not not it wasn't dark yet. It was the the sun was just above the horizon, but but it sure. Uh, uh, and I can remember saying, and it's on the cockpit voice recorder tape. Uh, oh, what the hell's happening? You know, and, yeah. Uh, we had not experienced this in the simulator. We we had not done uh, uh, training on uh, uh, all out engine failure, both engines failing. Uh, all it was was a loud bong, and oh and man, it, it got a little bit quieter. But you know, we in the flight deck of an airplane, most of the noise is uh, is uh, is noise air noise around the the cockpit, yeah, the front end of the airplane, and so it wasn't a big. It wasn't like the engine of your car quitting, uh, and all of a sudden there's no noise at all. Yeah. And, uh, but at any rate, I said to Morris, uh, "Don't worry. I'll bring it in high. It'll, it's a, it'll glide well. I'll bring it in high over Winnipeg. I'll do a high circuit. We won't land short." Yeah. Did you feel nervous at that time? Were you full of adrenaline? I don't. Feel, I don't remember feeling nervous at all. As a matter of fact, I don't remember any feelings at all. It was a cold, the whole thing, once that second engine failed, it was a cold, unemotional experience. I was just, I uh, got tunnel vision, I focused just on on uh, trying to account, figure the best uh, uh, speed and attitude for the airplane to keep us airborne as long as possible. And... Um, was fixated on, on uh, operating the airplane and following the air, ca- um, air traffic control instructions because now we're, we're relying on their their radar as we were on top of a solid layer of cloud. Yeah. What did Pearl, could you feel that there was something wrong with the plane? Could you tell when the engine shut off? Yes. Well, uh, everything sort of went dark and uh, we were looking around and, then we were told to go back to our seats and um, and to go, they put us through the emergency procedures. They started us on the emergency procedures. Did uh, Rick come back and kind of tell you what was going on in the cockpit? Well, he didn't come back till about, oh, I'd say four or five minutes before we touched down. And um, when he did come back, uh, I asked him what was the matter, and he leaned over and and he said, uh, we're a little short of fuel. And I I said, well, how short? And he said, just a little. He didn't want to uh, upset me. What was the vibe of other passengers in the cabin? Were people nervous or were people pretty calm? Well, we uh, when they put us through the emergency procedures, uh, I just sort of went into a little shock because I knew that something drastic was wrong because also the looks on the uh, flight attendants' faces told us that something drastic was wrong. So I didn't really notice uh, the other people. Uh, I didn't hear anybody um, saying anything. I just heard later that people were making their wills out, but I didn't I was just concentrating on Chris and thinking about my uh, Steve and Sandy, my two other children back home in Montreal. And um, 
So I didn't really notice that anything was going on. And then when Rick came back, people were looking at him because they knew that he that he was in the cockpit and and he just was a, so calm Aww. and he just he just said it's okay we're uh, we're going to land in Gimli. Sounds like you both everybody handled it like a pro. First you got Captain Pearson that's almost like a robot in there just not being, you know, full of adrenaline and just focused on the problem. And then you have Rick come back, tell you, oh, it's not a big deal, just a little short on fuel. And then you have you thinking about other people. It seems like everybody was doing a good job of keeping themselves in a proper headspace. Yes, that's for sure. So when the both engines go off, the uh, ram air turbine, does that automatically deploy, or do you have to do something to make it deploy? Well, it's both. Uh, there's a switch in front of the first officer that operates it, and... And it, uh, after a second engine failure, it should operate automatically. Which came first, I don't know, but uh, it, it it operated very well. And I should point out that that the Ram Air turbine on Air Canada 767s only provided hydraulic pressure to the three primary flight controls. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was no electric generation of... Uh, on that ram air turbine, and but it did uh, all as as pilots when we operate the controls from the flight deck, we're just opening and closing valves manually on the Boeing airplanes, mm-hmm. and uh, were there no cables and rods that there used to be on the older airplanes? So when we lost when the two engines failed, we lost all our hydraulic pressure in the three normal. Uh, hydraulic systems uh, that powered all these uh, other controls, like flaps and landing gear and speed brakes and spoilers and uh, you know and and the flight uh, the primary flight control. So if that ram air turbine, which there had been controversy over the manufacturer in fact installing them. Uh, but the decision was finally made to install ram air turbines, and of course that's what saved the day. Otherwise, we would not have had uh, control of the aircraft at all. Yeah. Another big part of this story is the side slip, the choice. Um, it seemed, I think if I'm understanding the uh, story correctly, you guys thought about making a 360 turn to lose some altitude, um, but you decided to go with the side slip. Do you want to explain exactly what a side slip is? Sure. A side slip is uh, flying the aircraft using the, the the rudder, the elevators on the tail, and the ailerons on the wingtips inefficiently, and, and cross-controlling them, these controls, so that the aircraft is not going through the air in a, in a streamlined attitude. It's crabbing through the air. And, and, and that, doing that, you, we were using the fuselage as a big speed break. We were going to be too high and too fast to land in Gimli uh, properly at, at the beginning of the runway. Uh, we were probably going to overshoot the runway. And, and like you said, we could have done a 360-degree turn, but you, you, use up, you lose a lot of altitude in a 360-degree turn. And mm-hmm. if, if we had used up too much, we would have been in trouble. The other another thing we could have done was was um, 
you know, S turns on the way in, and I I didn't think we'd lose enough altitude and and keep our speed down uh, safely. So it was easy to do. I mean, I had side slip. Uh, the story has been out that because I had flown gliders that I side slip gliders. Well, you don't side slip gliders because they've got very efficient speed brakes that you can control your speed and rate of descent with. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I did was uh, I did a lot of t- glider towing. And when you're towing a glider, you've got a long uh, rope hanging out the back with a metal ring on the back. And we would come over the farmer's fence uh, at the airport and side slip in on every landing pretty well to, to touch down early um, on the, as early as possible on the runway to get back and pick up the next glider. So uh, I had done uh, quite a bit of side slipping. And in fact, pilots in Canada, uh, to get their private pilot license, their first uh, power license, um, they must demonstrate being able to do a, a powerless landing because uh, if your single engine fails, you want to come over the trees and and uh, side slip and get down on the field as quickly as you can. So I was used to doing that, and uh, so it was not a big uh, uh, something that I was just learning on the on the on the on the fly. Yeah, something you already had some experience with. Thank God. Um, I was wondering how is how did the pressurization work in the cabin? Did you have to manually do that, or is that something that was still going on? No, uh, no. When the engine failed. Uh, the electric generators failed, the hydraulic uh, pumps failed, uh, uh, the pressurization system failed. So it was a brand new airplane, and of course the seals on the doors and windows and whatnot were all, uh, the hatches were all uh, were all new, but the airplane was depressurizing. I, I, I think it probably, you know, normally the pressure of the cabin would have, been about 8,500 feet of altitude, and I think it may have gone up to maybe 11,000 feet mm-hmm. as we glided down, because we were only coming down at about 2,000 feet a minute. And uh, but you know we we uh, we didn't have the instruments to tell us all these things, including how fast the airplane was coming down vertically. Yeah, that would have been very helpful, I imagine. Yes, speed brakes. Every glider built. Since uh, 19, the middle 30s, 1930s, has, has, is equipped with two things, and that's speed brakes uh, and a vertical speed indicator to tell you how fast you're coming down. So we had neither. In, yeah. normal, in normal flight with a 767, you do have both. Yeah, I guess you just had to rely on your skills and instinct. What made you uh, choose runway 32 left instead of 32 right? Well, um, that's a good question. When when uh, when it was an Air Force base, run they were they runway thirty two left was the main runway. Uh, the the both runways were sixteen hundred feet long. Uh, the right one was uh, one hundred and fifty feet wide and made of asphalt. The left one was two hundred feet wide and made of cement. And it had the old approach light poles from the Air Force days in place. And when the first officer who had done some training there with the Air Force, uh, that was the runway that they used. Um, 
when we talked to air traffic control on the radio on the way down, asking if they had any emergency equipment, no, well, get some from wherever. And um, uh, what, what, what about the airport? Well, it's a single runway operation as far as they knew, but there was no control. Mm-hmm. No, no, there's no control tower with somebody in it. And so when we first saw the airport, we saw runway 32 left. And I, I never saw runway 32 right. So we had no, we were, we had not any information that runway 32 left, in fact, had been decommissioned somewhere after the time that uh, Morris uh, was in the Air Force there. Mm. So the plane comes down, you eventually land, and the tires blow out. Pearl, did you feel those tires blow out? Did you hear a loud bang? Well, uh, we just heard the loud noise of, like, <clears throat> sort of dragging dragging along the um, the ground. I didn't hear a noise, like a bang or anything at all. But you felt you felt the nose of the plane go down, and then you just kind of dragged along. Were you pretty uh, scared, holding on for dear life at that moment? Oh yes, we were all holding on. But but um, uh, when we touched the ground, and even though we were dragging along the runway, we were we were so happy that we were on the ground, and we knew that we weren't. we're, weren't crashing anywhere that we were safe. Yeah. Uh, Captain Pearson, you want to talk about landing? What was like landing for you? Uh, the landing uh, actually was, uh, I had to keep the speed up from a normal landing because we didn't have leading and trailing edge flaps on the wings that enabled us safely to slow down. So it was quite a fast approach. And with a side slip that I varied to to fly our, uh, a, a good uh, rate of descent and speed, uh, we crossed the threshold uh, at a good safe altitude and touched down uh, pretty close to the thousand at 800 feet down the runway, and we normally aim for a thousand feet with a large jet aircraft, and fairly gently. As soon as we touched down on the main gear, and it, you know, it's hard, it's, it's, uh, the, the floor you are, normally the, the harder the landing's gonna be, because, you know, when, when you're at a higher speed, you're actually flying the airplane onto the ground. Yeah. And so, as soon as we touched down on the main gear, quite gently, I jumped on the main gear brakes, and, uh, we had, two full shots of max braking without anti-skid protection. Uh, as soon as I did that, the nose gear collapsed and the nose hit, and there was quite a bang up front. It sounded like a double barrel shotgun going off at our feet. Yeah. And so I kept the brakes on. Um, just, um, well, we slowed, we're down at quite a slow speed. And I noticed a guardrail in the middle of the runway. It's a metal rail that you find on a country road, you know, guarding a ditch or and uh, metal. Mm-hmm. And and I leaned a little harder on the right brakes. The the two tires blew on the right side, and we just creased the guardrail with the left side of the fuselage. Um, and then and uh, 
so the air the aircraft uh, when we stopped the right the the right hand starboard engine cowling had just scraped the, the ground a little bit. Um, so the, there was some damage to the nose, um, and uh, ground witnesses uh, informed us that the nose gear was back at about a 45-degree angle when we touched down. The main gear had locked properly because it falls sideways and is heavy. Yeah. And because it was, we were free-falling it, there was no hydraulic pressure to force it down. It was just gravity. But the nose gear falling forward into the airstream, uh, you know, the Boeing people said it probably another couple of minutes it would have been down and locked. At any rate, uh, at the the uh, we stopped in about three thousand feet, leaving three thousand feet of runway. Hmm. So runway length was uh, not, which which was the big concern of mine on the approach that we wouldn't have enough runway. Well, we had plenty of runway, and I guess of course. Uh, the friction of the nose and the aerodynamic attitude of the aircraft and the tail in the air uh, helped slow us too. But we stopped at 3,000 feet, which is pretty fast. Yeah, I'm glad that you guys were uh, able to miss those boys on the bikes too. Yeah, that was the scary part for me. Uh, that's the only time I remember any emotion. I was uh, looking up and seeing uh, two boys on bikes. Uh, there were three, and uh, there's one I didn't see. So the story for a while that was it was just two two boys, but uh, uh, yeah, they had a pretty terrified looks on their faces. They were young, <laughs> ten or eleven, um, and they pedaled fast. And I was going to almost took the airplane off the runway in the out of the field. Uh, didn't have to. They pedaled fast enough uh, to get across the runway and. Uh, uh, like I said, we stopped at three thousand feet, which is pretty quick. So uh, we were able to keep the airplane on the runway. Yeah, I think everybody was lucky to have somebody that would respond to the situation the way you did, because I think a lot of people would feel a blast of adrenaline and maybe, you know. Well, that's it, you know, uh, that's and that's it. Um, I think that's what happens. The adrenaline kicks in, and none, uh, if somebody had asked me, could you do something like that, I w- I'm sure I would have said no. You know, if we were flying along at... 41,000 feet, and somebody pointed down to Gimli and said, could you land that air, this, if both engines fail, could you? Oh, God, no. <laughs> but but you do it. You did it. Because there are no options, and I think pilots that think they can't do it are probably wrong. They probably can do it. They just haven't had the experience of all that adrenaline rushing around in their body. Yeah, you handled it well. Well, you do what you got to do, and... Uh, and that Michael's our job. <laughs> <laughs> you got that plane on the ground, and now you've had. We got paid for it. That's great, uh, Pearl. How did you get off the plane? Did you go through the front or the back exit? Uh, the over the wing, we uh, Rick uh, grabbed Chris and uh, went uh, went down the chute over the wing first, and then I followed. How did you guys get from Gimli to wherever you were going? Did you eventually go to Edmonton? Yes, uh, we had friends in uh, Winnipeg, uh, Bill Kennedy, he was also an Air Canada pilot, and uh, we got together with him the next day on the Sunday, and he happened to be flying to uh, Edmonton that evening, so uh, we got on his flight and went to Edmonton, and because because we didn't think that... uh, 
anything would happen twice, uh, we were quite relaxed on his flight to Edmonton. Yeah, so that was another question I was going to ask you, is this experience on uh, Flight 143, how did it affect your relationship to flying? It sounds like it didn't have that big of an effect because within 24 hours you're on another plane. Yes, I guess because uh, we knew Bill, uh, we were quite um, relaxed. And also because Rick was a private pilot, we did a lot of flying in uh, our airplanes and... um, we were we were quite uh, quite confident that it could never happen twice. That's great. Uh, yeah. C- Captain Pearson, what did you do the night of the incident? Did you have to wait in Gimli for a while? Um, yeah, we overnighted. Uh, uh, I, we touched down about twenty to nine in the evening, um, and uh, I think I left the airport about uh, two in the morning. Um, the what happened after we stopped was, uh, and we uh, made sure the passengers were all off. The airplane was filling with smoke, and uh, uh, it was um, it, it, our our uh, flight that day was about six weeks after an Air Canada DC nine had landed in Cincinnati and caught fire, and over the half the passengers had perished, and and so. The uh, evacuation window was very quick and orderly, um, and I should mention that you know the with the attitude of the airplane sitting on its nose, the tail in the air, the and the smoke billowing up through the cabin from the front, uh, the flight attendants uh, encouraged a lot of the passengers to use the aft slides, and the first few got a little bruised because of the steepness of the slides, but after everybody was off. And I remember getting, I said to the flight attendants, get the passengers well away from the airplanes. And uh, I was standing there looking at this beautiful brand new $60 million airplane. And uh, a a fellow, one of our passengers came up and put his hand on my shoulder. And he said, "Uh, Captain, he said, that was a bit of a feat. And uh, I said, yeah, but this brand new airplane's uh, going to burn and no fire department. And uh, he said, well, he said, uh, this is the first, he said, I trained in Gimli and, uh, and this is the first time I've been back since uh, I trained before going overseas and flying as a fighter pilot in World War II. So <laughs> that was uh, something I, I remember quite clearly. And, uh, and uh, so went about getting uh, flight attendants, uh, fire extinguishers off the aircraft, went back on the airplane, got some fire extinguishers and... Uh, that black oily smoke that's uh, burning plasticky insulation uh, is pretty toxic. And uh, uh, so anyway, I managed to get the fine two fire extinguishers in the smoke. And as I was spraying them underneath the nose, the uh, uh, people from the sports, park, sports car club came up and, and offered the extinguishers and they helped put the, the fire out. There's one more question I wanted to ask you, which was, out of all the information out there about the Gimli Glider, do you feel like there's any misconceptions out there? What's the biggest thing that you feel is inaccurate about the story that you read about on the internet? Well, there's lots of small items, like, uh, you know, I used to uh, 
uh, slide slip gliders, which, as I explained, was not true. But there's a lot of small issues like that. But the one that's been grading me a little bit in the last year or so is the fact that somehow, well, I know how, the, the like on Wikipedia and um, and some of the productions that are done where where we're not interviewed, uh, there's a misconception that uh, first officer and I were disciplined by our Canada. Well, that's f- so far from the truth. Um, the federal, after our landing, the federal government conducted a two-year, well, a, a one-year public in, uh, investigation, and uh, I was on the witness stand five days, and Morris about three days, and it was all public and uh, well publicized. And at the end of it, uh, when the final report came out a year later, uh, we were highly praised for what we did and uh, totally exonerated for, you know, we had done nothing wrong. So why anybody would even think that uh, some discipline had taken place in there, can I don't know. As a matter of fact, the blame by the inquiry was mostly put on senior Canada management and Boeing, uh, Minneapolis, Honeywell, Consolidated Refueling and Transport Canada. So that that hurts a little bit. You yep. know, it, well, maybe uh, this you know, uh, maybe this interview will put some emphasis on that, and I'll uh, maybe some people will go on Wikipedia and correct things now that they got the facts from you. Sure, that's good. Mike, can I just add something? Yeah. Uh, when we uh, when we went down the slide, uh, I said to Rick, "We better run because uh, you know the uh, it might, the airplane might catch fire." Because I was thinking of the um, the uh, uh, airplane, the Air Canada uh, plane in Cincinnati that had caught fire a month before, and uh, he turned to me and he said, "No, we don't have to run. There's no there was no is no gas in it." <laughs> that's pretty funny he's like yeah. he's like we don't yeah. have to run there's no way it's going to explode yeah that's right so he then he that was the first time he admitted that uh, he knew that there was no gas so the big question on everyone's mind i'm sure is how did the two of you end up together <laughs> well well uh, uh sadly our spouses both passed away and uh they were having a big 30th anniversary uh, get-together uh, in um, in Gimli, and uh, Chris really wanted to go to it, so I took a few days off and um, took him and his girlfriend uh, to Gimli, and uh, we we just saw each other, didn't, uh, didn't uh, say much to each other, Bob and I, but uh, then after the um, after we were both home, we started uh, communicating and uh, and talking about both the flight and and everything, and saw that we had so much in common, and uh, we had a lot of friends in common, every and airplanes in common. So um, so we just uh, ended up together, which was the best thing we could have done. That's nice. I'm happy that's such a nice, happy ending to this story. Yes, very, very. Uh, even though there were some sad situations in between, but um, we're uh, enjoying life together, and uh, we have so much in common, like I said. 
Oh, what's it like for each of you to have played such a you know major role with this famous internationally known event, Gim- the Gimli Glider story? How do you guys feel about participating in that story and being a part of that? Well, it's it it's very interesting, and I think I always say that the the best part of it is the people we're meeting. I, I'm we're both very people. Uh, persons and uh, and I've met the most wonderful interesting people along the way and that that is the best thing that could uh, the came of it or that's come of it uh, now what about for you captain Pearson what what's it been like to uh, live a lot of your life just associated with this event do you ever get sure, sick of- I would echo what the pearl said uh, and uh, um, you know uh I've I've been giving doing guest speaker talks for 37 years now, <laughs> and for a while I must admit it did get a little boring talking, and uh, uh, you know, but people seem to still want to hear the story. We just uh, our last talk was in Auckland, New Zealand, where we gave a couple of talks uh, in March this year, uh, just before we got home uh, at the beginning of this uh, virus pandemic, so. Uh, we haven't done any talking since, except for today. But um, it's enjoyable. We, like Pearl said, we meet lots of people. We get, you know, we, we, uh, we, we, uh, the, the interest is still there in the story. So I guess as long as it is, and, and we're able to uh, keep our uh, not lose interest in talking about it, uh, we'll we'll keep doing it. That sounds good. The smiles that we put on people's faces is worth a lot too, because they re- they're really interested in st- in the story still. Yeah, I think well, clearly from talking to you both, you both are very kind people. It's been a pleasurable conversation to have with you guys today. I uh, thank you for taking time out of your day to talk with me and PCPC, and thanks for sharing your story with us. I really hope you guys have good health and a great fall. Again, that was Captain Pearson and Pearl Dion from Air Canada Flight 143. Thank you, guys. It's been a pleasure, Michael. Thank you very kindly. Thank you, Michael. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Thanks again to Captain Bob Pearson and Pearl Dion for talking with us. Really enjoyed chatting with them. Happy that they reconnected, and I hope, like the true Canadians that they are, that they get to do some curling this fall. Tess, what did you think of the interview? I thought it was a great interview, Michael. I was just so fascinated by their individual perspectives on the event, and I thought it was also so touching that they came together after experiencing this really traumatic and pivotal event and they found each other and they can now lean on each other for support and process it together. Uh, That was pretty incredible. Yeah, it's an amazing story. You got to imagine if they go out in public and people meet them and say, so how did you two meet? They got quite the story to tell them. Exactly. Yeah, not exactly romantic. Well, actually, I think it is romantic to have your future husband save your life. It doesn't get much more romantic (laughs) than that. That's pretty phenomenal. The Canadian report on the investigation of Flight 143 came out in April 1985. In the report, the board criticized Air Canada for the lack of standardization across their fleet, having some planes that worked on the metric system while others used the imperial system led to confusion in the refueling air. The report also blamed the lack of inventory for replacement parts. A number of times, maintenance employees saw that there was a problem with the fuel quantity processor, and when they tried to access a replacement part, one was not available. The report also mentions just general poor communication at the airline. The condition the aircraft was in on the evening of July 23, 1983, was not clearly communicated to the flight crew. The logbook entries were confusing. There was a failure by the airline to assign fuel load calculation duties and provide proper training for this task to pilots and maintenance. So how did the Gimli glider incident make flying safer for us today? Well, at the time, the 767 was a relatively new model plane. It had only been commercially flown for less than a year. Flight 143 was a great lesson in how airlines needed better training for pilots and maintenance crews when introducing new systems with new technology into their fleets. Just because computers or some automated program was tackling the tasks that flight engineers used to do, didn't mean those tasks no longer had to be learned or taught to employees in the future. After all, if the computers go down, someone else needs to be able to step up to the plate and perform those tasks manually. Those tasks also had to be specifically assigned to someone so there would be no confusion about who would be responsible. Airlines learned the importance of keeping adequate inventory of replacement parts. On a number of occasions, maintenance tried to replace what they knew was a defective processor, and the lack of inventory on hand kept this problem ongoing. So airlines learned that having sufficient replacement parts in stock could mean the difference between having an incident or not. The report and incident also reminded airlines of the importance of having standardized fleets. Having a fleet with planes that operate on different systems can lead to confusion and miscalculations. As we just learned with Flight 143, a simple miscalculation can lead to a very serious incident. So keeping fleets standardized cuts down on the chances of making similar mistakes that could lead to an accident in the future. And those are some of the ways how Flight 143 made flying safer today. Tess, what did you think about the story of Flight 143 in general? I I really enjoyed hearing the story. I thought that it spoke to Captain Bob Pearson's skill as a pilot, and I thought it was really lucky that he, as a Canadian pilot, had had this training to be able to glide down 
um, and that he had experience towing gliders and side slipping in and all these things kind of made him more prepared to deal with this situation that kind of was thrust upon him. Um, I also thought that he was really uh, modest and humble about his skill. You know, the way he said that anyone could have done what he did. Mm. I'm not so sure that's true. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't think just anybody can deal with that. You know, I think a lot of people might get a blast of adrenaline and start worrying about themselves. That was one aspect of the interview. I mentioned it in the interview. I liked how everybody in that moment was just thinking about someone else. I feel like Captain Pearson was thinking about flying the plane, said he got really cold and robotic. Uh, Rick Dion was thinking about calming down Pearl and his and his son Chris Mm -hmm. Pearl was thinking about her kids Mm -hmm. and I just liked uh, how everybody put the worry on someone else Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah I loved that too I liked um, Pearl's anecdote about how Rick had told her as they were getting off the plane that actually the plane doesn't have any fuel to (laughs) catch fire (laughs) that was when it came out He definitely revealed the truth of the situation that he knew all along that the plane had no fuel, but he hid that from her because he didn't want to freak her out, which is really kind. Um, What did you think about the story? Who do you think was at fault? Where did you see the blame for the incident lying? I think that the fault lies with Air Canada mainly. Communication was really poor. They didn't communicate the condition that the plane was in. They didn't assign someone to, you know, calculate fuel load. It just was a a bad situation. It wasn't, it was the systems in place. It it didn't have anything to do with the people on board. I agree with you 100%. I definitely don't think it was the pilot's fault. I think that they were part of a system that didn't give them the training they needed to to fly that plane safely that day. They didn't get the info that the plane was in this condition. There just was kind of shoddy communication due to the systems um, implemented by Air Canada. I also thought like the whole idea of not having adequate inventory on hand. It seemed like there was a number of times that Yuremko was like, we got an issue. I wish I could replace the processor. And he just would find out we don't have a processor. So just let the plane fly on. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a a flaw. I think if anything, those pilots were heroes. They kept their heads together, maintained their cool, got that plane on the ground and saved 69 lives. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Tess, not to toot our own horn or anything, but this is the 29th incident that we've covered. And I feel like I'm starting to see a pattern and certain incidents look like other incidents and can be kind of categorized. I really think Flight 143 is a new technology, change in technology meets insufficient training kind of accident. Yeah, absolutely. It reminded me a little bit of the Boeing um, MAX Exactly. That's what I was going to say is that these guys got put in a situation, brand new plane, new technology, insufficient training leads to an issue. I think even if you look at the British Midland flight, I think that was the flight where one engine went down and they turned off the wrong engine. And it was because they were used to flying 737-300s where the right engine would bring in air into the cabin. So when they smelled smoke, they thought it was automatically the right engine. But this was a 737-400 that drew air in from both engines. And that little change in the design of the plane led to a misconception by the pilots. So I think we're seeing that if you have a new plane, new technology, 
insufficient training that's just signing up for a future incident. Yeah, right. It makes me so mad, too, that these big companies with so much money put their employees in, in danger because they don't want to pay the money that it would cost to give adequate training. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head right there. That That's always a selling feature that Boeing wants to sell people, and I'm sure Airbus wants to sell people, is, hey, we made this new plane, it's more efficient, has some new systems, but they're not that complicated. You can just give them some quick training, and any pilot can fly it. And yeah, it's like riding a bike. Another thread that I feel like I'm seeing with accidents is inoperative equipment. If you look at flight 143, you got this faulty fuel processor, leads to the fueling air that causes an incident. If you look at TAM Airlines flight 3054 from that dangerous airport, what was it called? Congonias. Mm -hmm. Um, That happened because of the inoperative reverse thrust on one of the engines. So it forced the pilot to come up with a new way of bringing the throttles back, led to confusion, led to an accident. So... As far as having inoperative equipment on a plane, that seems like you're opening up the possibility of having an issue. Absolutely. Anytime tape is involved, um, it seems like you've got a problem. Yeah, don't fly planes with yellow tape. Mm-hmm. I was surprised in the story, and Captain Pearson, I believe, mentioned this in the interview as well, that there was a loud bong when both engines went down. And you got Captain Pearson that's flown for 15,000 hours And that was the first time he had heard that sound in his entire career. And I thought it was strange that there's noises going off in the cockpit that pilots have never heard before. You'd imagine they'd hear everything in a simulator or during training. I thought it was kind of an interesting insight. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it kind of shows you how even all the training sometimes can't even prepare you for what the actual crash is going to be like. Yeah, you just got to train pilots to fly. And if there's an issue, hopefully they can fly the plane. And you can't be too reliant on computers. An interesting side note is Captain Pearson told me in a phone conversation that runway 32 right was actually open, clear and functional. I thought originally when I was researching that the entire airport was converted into a racing park, but that was incorrect. Only runway 32 left had been decommissioned and turned into the part of this racing park. 32 left was the runway the Air Force used, and when the Air Force base was decommissioned, the runway was decommissioned as well. Even to this day, small carriers and private pilots use runway 32 right. Captain Pearson told me he had simply never seen the other runway when he was descending. He said that 32 left was a wider runway, was made of cement, so visually it was easier to spot. It had the old approach light posts, so all three of these things caught his attention. Runway 32 right had an asphalt runway, and it blended in with the ground and just didn't catch his eye. But he said to me, we should have landed on 32 right because it was the active runway. I thought he was really honest. I loved, I loved his honesty about the incident. Yeah, absolutely. It was such a treat to be able to talk to them. I felt like they were just, they gave us this window into the incident that we never would have gotten otherwise. All the little particulars too. He told me the guardrail plays a huge part in the story, but it actually didn't slow the plane down that much. That narrative has kind of been blown out of proportion. Oh, interesting. (laughs) There wasn't an official CVR transcript that I could find for this incident. So it wasn't included in the report. I know I usually use a lot of quotes from uh, the CVR, but I figured since we were talking to Captain Pearson, we could just hear the best story from him himself. Exactly. Straight from the captain's mouth. Yeah. In an interview, First Officer Cantell said about the side slip, it was an odd feeling. The left wing was down, so I was up compared to Bob. I sort of looked down at him, not sideways anymore. 
As I mentioned in the story, during the side slip, passengers on the left side of the plane were reported to have gotten an up-close look at a golf course as they looked out their window, while passengers on the other side of the plane saw blue skies. Tess, that sounds a little bit unnerving, no? Yeah, I can't decide whether I'd want to be on the blue sky side or the golf course side. I'd go with golf course side. I like golf courses. Yeah, you know what? I, I've always liked golf. I guess I'll go with the golf side as well. Yeah, not too bad. Pearl spoke about it for a moment during the interview, but apparently passengers said that once the engine shut off and the plane went dark, a number of them started scrambling to write farewell notes to their loved ones and others wrote wills on paper they could find. Kind of reminded me of Japanese Airlines Flight 123. Remember that one, Tess? Yeah, I do. The really heartfelt letters that were being written definitely reminded me that of that as well. The World Aeronautical Federation awarded a diploma for outstanding airmanship to Captain Bob Pearson and First Officer Morris Cantell in 1985. First Officer Morris Cantell went on to become a captain in 1989. Unfortunately, he passed away on September 24th, 2015. But thankfully, he was a complete professional. And on July 23rd, 1983, he showed up to work maintained his cool in the heat of the moment, helped get that plane on the ground so 68 of his fellow human beings could live long and happy lives. So thank you and cheers to you, Captain Cantell. Another interesting side note that I read about online and Captain Pearson confirmed for me is that a van full of Air Canada mechanics drove up to Gimli from Winnipeg to look over the aircraft shortly after the incident, and the van they were driving, it ran out of fuel. Apparently, the universe was out of whack in late July 1983, and everyone was short on gas. What, was Mercury in retrograde or something? Must have been. Uh, The plane used for Flight 143 was repaired and returned to service, where it was part of the Air Canada fleet until January 24th, 2008. It is now stored in the Mojave Desert in an airplane retirement yard. It was flown to the Mojave Desert from Montreal, and Captain Pearson and Captain Kintel were both on board. Well, that seems appropriate that they should be on its last flight. Yeah, and give it a proper send-off. There's a museum dedicated to the Gimli Glider in Gimli, Manitoba. On display is some of Captain Bob Pearson's personal memorabilia, a Ram Air turbine, a three-window panel from the fuselage of the actual plane. There's one of the bikes from one of the boys on the runway. And there's a cockpit mock-up simulator experience where you get to feel like you're landing at Gimli Airport. Definitely want to head up to Gimli someday and check it out. I'd like to thank Barb Gluck for help with the research and communication for this episode. I really appreciate your help, Barb, and we hope to come see you soon and say hi. Thanks, Barb. I also want to thank Captain Bob Pearson and Pearl for coming on the podcast. They are two of the best possible guests we could have gotten for this episode, and their story is so inspiring and moving, and it was just a pleasure to have them. Yeah, I think we were very lucky to get to talk to them. They're both amazing people, and I hope they get to do some curling, and I hope they have a great fall and a great winter. Thanks again, guys. Tess, are you ready for a few stories from the world of airline news? I am ready, Michael. Hit me with them. Singapore Airlines announced a few days ago that in the end of October 2020, They will start offering their customers flights to nowhere. What is a flight to nowhere? Well, the idea behind these no destination flights is to offer the residents of Singapore a flying experience where passengers take off from Changi Airport, fly around in the sky for three hours, enjoy that sweet view from 35,000 feet that they've so dearly missed over the past year due to the travel restrictions because of the pandemic. 
After cruising around for about 180 minutes, the flights land at the same airport that they took off from, Changi Airport in Singapore. There's chatter that these flights might be part of a full staycation package where you get a flight to nowhere, a hotel room in downtown Singapore, vouchers for retail shops and limo rides around the city. In a recent survey of Singapore residents, 75% of respondents said they'd be willing to pay for such a flight. Tess, would a flight to nowhere appeal to you right now? (laughs) What the heck? I don't even know what to say. How much do these flights to nowhere run? I don't know. When I first read flight to nowhere, it kind of broke my brain initially. Me too. It It sounds like a book title or an album. It made me spiral into like an existential crisis. I thought... Are we all truly destined for Nowheresville? It's very nihilistic. It's yeah. very Albert Camus. Then I thought lots of pilots that operate small planes go on little recreational flights. So why wouldn't human beings like to do that too? Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the Air New Zealand flight we covered that was just a sightseeing flight. Mm-hmm. Um, personally, I would a flight is a means to an end for me. I'm very much about the destination and not really very much about the journey. So... I don't think I will be signing up for a flight to nowhere anytime soon, but no judgment to anyone that considers it a fun activity. Yeah. I was interested about the COVID situation in Singapore, and I learned that they've only had 27 deaths since the beginning of the COVID crisis. So it seems like there might be a different calculation that happens in Singapore getting onto a plane as Mm. opposed to the United States right now. Right. So it's not as dangerous for them to get on a plane, and they're trying to encourage people to actually come back to their home country and have a staycation yeah, where just it's safe. Get to travel, feel like you're doing something fun, get out of the house, spend some money. That makes sense, but I don't know that it'll appeal to me. I just thought it was interesting. Tess, on September 10th, 2020, a Pabita Airlines flight from Moscow to St. Petersburg, Russia, was forced to perform a go-around after the pilots spotted a dog on the runway as they were coming down for their landing. The plane was a Boeing 737-800, and the pilots circled the airport for another approach and landed safely 10 minutes later on runway 28 right. Bobita Airlines is a low-cost carrier in Russia owned by Aeroflot. Last month, another Russian flight, this time an Airbus A320neo, flying from Novozabirsk to Magadan, had to perform a go-around after a grizzly bear was spotted on the runway during final approach. On July 14th, 2020... A WestJet Boeing 737 struck and killed a skunk upon landing at Ottawa International Airport. Luckily, no one other than the skunk was injured in that incident, but there have been a number of stories lately of wildlife wandering onto runways. Tess, do you think this is to be expected, that as man continues paving over the earth with concrete, that inevitably there will be run-ins with wildlife? Or do you believe these animals were simply trying to hitch a ride to an exotic destination, and unfortunately they haven't been properly trained as to how the ticketing and booking process for airlines works? Yeah, this is why I've been saying for a long time that um, animal airports need to be popularized in the States, but... I think that these animals are trying to tell us something, Michael. I think that they want in on air travel, and who are we to deny them a first-class ticket? Yeah, they see a huge 737. They think, why not me? Why can't I be on that? I bet that grizzly bear was just trying to get to Alaska to get some you know, freshwater salmon. Some salmon, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think uh, the dog and skunk, I can understand how grounds crew could get them off the runway, but how do you get a grizzly bear off the runway? Who's going to go out there and be like, hey, Jim, go get that grizzly off the runway. This plane needs it to land. 
Yeah, exactly. I I wouldn't want to be the TSA worker that had to scare away the grizzly. <laughs> a new role for TSA. We need you to leave the security gates and go out and chase grizzlies off the uh, runway. Tess, a few domestic airlines are adding some leisure routes for Americans in the upcoming months ahead. United Airlines has announced new routes to Buenos Aires, Argentina, Lima, Peru, Cancun, Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, just to name a few of the new cities they'll be flying to. Southwest Airlines has announced they'll be servicing new flights to Miami, Florida, and Palm Springs, California. JetBlue, one of your favorite airlines, also announced that they'll be scheduling new routes to Puerto Rico, Jamaica, Aruba, and San Jose, Costa Rica. So Americans can't easily get to Europe right now, and subsequently, airlines are trying to accommodate the desire to travel by building out their international schedules to places Americans are currently welcome. That seems to mean more flights to the Caribbean, Mexico, Central America, and South America. Test smart move by the airlines, or are they just signing up to lose more money? Will you be booking a flight to the Caribbean? Well, I did tell you that a beach vacation was number one on my list. Yeah, they're just trying to cater to you. Exactly. Um, I won't be booking anytime soon, but I think it's a valiant effort that they're trying to um, get the ticket sales up. Yeah, maybe as fall approaches, people are going to go south where it's warmer. And since much of the globe is off limits right now, it seems like the Caribbean and Mexico are the only options for a vacation these days if you're itching for a vacay. Exactly. And I know we all are. For our last story of the day, Microbin International, a company that specializes in antimicrobial products, has made a new security bin for use in airports. Delta has announced they'll be using these new bins at their automated security checkpoints in Atlanta, Minneapolis, St. Paul, LAX, LaGuardia, and JFK airports. A recent study showed that 10% of typical security bins have viruses on them. These new bins use technology to minimize the presence of microbes. There's even an indicator on the handle of the bin to show that the bin is safe to use. Tess, are you a fan of these new virus-proof bins? Absolutely. And now I'm anti the old bins. I didn't even know I was until just now. You you become a passionate uh, protester of the old bins. (laughs) Yeah. I, I don't think I ever really thought about how many germs must be on those bins. But now that it's in my head, I can't. I can't unsee it. <laughs> I want to know the specifics of how these bins work. I couldn't find any information online about how they actually work. Obviously, the company probably doesn't want to share its secrets because competitors could quickly develop a virus-free security bin of their own. But when I was reading about these bins, it made me think of Teflon pans. You know, we all love that nonstick pan for our eggs, right up to the point where we discover that we're slowly ingesting chemicals that are going to give us all cancer. So I want some more specifics. Get a patent on that bin, people, and let us know what's actually happening. Yeah, we want to know. Well, I think that's going to do it for the 29th episode of PCPC. Thanks to Tess Andrade. Tess, anything you want to say to the peeps? Thank you so much, peeps. I love you all. Michael, love you too. Thanks for making this podcast happen. Yeah, thank you for being on it yet again. Thanks to Captain Bob Pearson and Pearl Dion and Barb Gluck. Thanks to the Patreon crew. You guys are amazing. Really appreciate your support. Um, We love reviews, so if you want to leave us a review, we'd appreciate it. And let us know if you like longer, more in-depth episodes with interviews and fewer overall episodes, or if you want shorter, more frequent episodes. I'm kind of interested to what you all think. You can communicate with us on Twitter at Plane Crash Pod or on Instagram at Plane Crash Podcast, and we have a website at PlaneCrashPod.com. We've made it this far, people, September 2020. 
with just four months to go, and then we can all go buy shirts that say, I survived 2020. I uh, appreciate you guys tuning in. I'm going to work on getting you an episode as quickly as possible. Love you guys. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.